Hello, Riverstone Church family and friends. Thank you for your kind acknowledgement of my recent credentialing achievements. You have all been such an amazing blessing to me, to my wife Davia, and our family. And thank you all for being part of our journey in ministry together for the sake of the gospel. It's such a privilege, honor, and joy to be part of this church body, to be serving alongside you all. So thank you for that. Pastor Tom last week mentioned that he was closing our series on the Psalms, but he must have forgotten about the final, final sermon in the series. Last week was the final sermon, and today I will actually be closing our series with the final, final sermon in our series on the Psalms. All jokes aside, I will be preaching on Psalm 146 today, and this will be our last sermon in our series on the Psalms. Family, 2020 came in heavy and still weighs heavy on us all in many ways. From the global COVID impact to our current racial war across the country and the vast array of justice issues that keep our nation in turmoil, we are all asking so many questions, as we should be. As Christians, where do we turn for clarity, guidance, help? Who or what should we be trusting in? Psalm 146 will serve us well in both drawing our series to a close on an appropriate note and pointing us in the right direction as we seek to navigate through this complex and highly contentious landscape that we live in. Psalm 146 is a praise psalm, or literally, a hallelujah psalm. Actually, Psalm 146 is the first of five hallelujah psalms, each beginning and closing with hallelujah. These praise psalms close the book and serve as the destiny of the psalms. Everlasting praise is our destiny as well. In other words, as we journey through the Psalms and experience the ups and downs, the joys and sorrows, the bounties and droughts of this life with the various psalmists, it is fitting that we would end in praise. We praise God for who He is and all that He has done and continues to do for us. Let me open, a word, open in a word of prayer before we read and walk through Psalm 146. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, we need you. We thank you for setting your special love upon us and bringing us into your family. And we ask that you would continue to nourish us, feed us, lead us, guide us, encourage us with hope through your word today. Help us see you 
more fully, love you more deeply, and live for you more faithfully as we walk through your word. Help it change our hearts and encourage us and equip us to move out into the world as witnesses of the gospel, agents of peace, blessing, and reconciliation. All to the glory and honor of your great name we pray. Amen. Psalm 146, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Literally, hallelujah. Meaning, praise God. But hallelujah carries with it more than just a verbal expression. Several commentators show that the hallelujahs in these closing psalms are intended to call the assembly to attention. One commentator says it's a kind of liturgical alarm signal to the sluggish in the assembly. Hallelujah! Wake up! Be alert! There's business at hand, praising the Lord. Okay, psalmist, talk to us. Show us something praiseworthy. And he'll get there. But first he goes on. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Okay, so he moves from the public call to praise to the private call for praise. Now this is interesting. This should be comforting. His soul isn't naturally bursting forth in praise here. He calls his own soul to praise. Too often we get tossed around by our life circumstances, allowing the external to control the internal, finding ourselves like jellyfish in the waves, Tossed to and fro, up and down, tumbling and back again to our sway. The psalmist tells himself, wake up, drop your anchor, stand in praise. St. Augustine of Hippo, our great North African early church father, from the mid to late 4th century into the early 5th century, has a wonderful commentary on the Psalms, more of a personal diary reflecting through the Psalms. And he reflects here saying, The flesh, when duly obedient, is the handmaid of the soul. The soul rules, the body obeys. The soul commands the body performs. How then can the flesh give this command to the soul? Is it perchance that the soul herself says to herself and commands herself in exhortation? Realizing that certain inferior parts of her are troubled by worldly emotions, and by the stirring up of earthly desires, she lets herself wander off to outward things, leaving the God within. So she calls herself 
from things outward to things inward, from the lower to the higher, saying, Praise the Lord, O my soul. You see what Augustine is acknowledging? He personifies the soul and says, she so easily gets stirred up by her surroundings that she can't help but to get caught up in the troubles around her. But she must catch herself and call herself back to her proper place. Verse 2, I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. After calling the assembly and himself to attention and praise, he commits himself to action. He says, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I live in this body, in this world of trouble. I must commit to praise. Family, what we see here in these opening verses is so important. The praise that the psalmist commits to is not merely an expression of happiness or excitement. In other words, he doesn't praise God because something good just happened to him. His praise is an expression of faith which will become clear as we work through the rest of the psalm. Most modern commentators agree that this psalm is probably dated to around the time when the people of God were still in exile in Babylon. They are in captivity when the psalmist calls the assembly to praise God as an expression of hope and faith. They hope that God will deliver because of who he is and what he has already done. The psalmist moves on now to the basis of his praise. He provides encouragement to the assembly, starting with a vital warning. Verses 3 and 4. Do not trust in princes, in mortal man, in whom there is no salvation. His spirit departs, he returns to the earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. Oh, my family, we need to reckon with this right now. Do not trust in princes literally here speaking of noblemen, people with a platform and influence in the land. Not merely royal princes as we might know it in kingdoms. Why don't trust them? Because they're people who come and go, poof, like a vapor in the wind. There's a play on words here. The earthling returns to the earth. There is no salvation in people. Even the noble ones 
even the influencers. All their thoughts, all their policies, all their promises, all their passion, all their influence, poof, comes to nothing. Conversely, in verse 5, how blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who, let's stop right there. When I was writing this sermon, I didn't know where I should stop this next section. Verse 6, verse 7, 8, 9. We have to read through verse 9 here. We have to know how blessed we are to have our Lord God, the Lord God, to hope in for our help. So who is he, psalmist? Tell us about our God. Let's read verses 6 through 9. I'll start at 5. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. Amen. Let's focus back up on the contrast in verses 4 and 5 where he ends with, don't trust in princes, rather, how blessed. Here we have the final beatitude in the book of Psalms. The blessing is for those who have learned to hope in God, for those who find their help from God. Can you see the connections here? It's very important. The psalmist can call himself and his assembly to praise God because he trusts God as his hope and his helper in times of trouble. And he knows that he can trust him because of what he knows about him and what he's seen and heard him do. Now, what does this mean for us? How do the psalmist's words influence our lives in our troubles and turmoil in North America today? Well, let's just think very practically with respect to our race and justice war going on right now. Do not trust in President Trump. Do not trust in candidate Biden. Do not trust in Pence. Do not trust 
in Pelosi or Bernie. Do not trust in Fox. Do not trust in CNN. Don't trust in Ben or Candace or Dinesh. Don't trust in Patrice or Kimberly. Don't trust in Alicia or Al. Don't trust in Dennis or Larry. Don't trust in Sam or Bill or Rachel. Don't trust in Joe or Dave or Rush, nor the latest social media activist hashtagging from their bedroom couch. You get the point? Everybody has a whole lot to say, and nobody has anything worth trusting in. Not with the trust that we need to endure. Not with the trust that the world needs for salvation and real transformational everlasting hope and peace. Following these princes and princesses of our land in our day, and boy, we have a lot, leads to no salvation at all. There is no promised land where these leaders and their followers take us. There is only one who can say, I am the defense, I am the prosecution, and I am the judge. I am the Lord God Almighty. You can trust in me, maker and sustainer of the heavens and earth and all that is in them, the only true deliverer, the only true faithful one, the only one we can hope in. Family, we, the church, are the ones who know the path to freedom, the path to justice, the path to salvation and the promised land. Not only do we know it, we are kept here in the world to pave that path for the world to show it, to declare it, to work it out. That's our cause for Christ. Amen? Do you see what happens when the church does not lead the way in paving this path for the world? Social movements form. Movements of people Desperately seeking hope, seeking liberation, dignity, justice. Good for them. They need it. We need it. I don't blame them at all. It makes total sense to me from the Bible. Can you see what the promised land looks like? without Christ Redeemer dwelling in the mist. Autonomous zones. Occupy districts in our cities that ultimately implode. I don't have an ounce of animosity for those dwelling in these promised lands. That's all they have. My heart breaks for the hopelessness and despair that serve as the pillars of these camps. 
I hope that you can see where I stand here, that is, beneath the surface, not on the same plane as flesh and blood. How do you view the movements in our society? How do you view the dwellers of these camps around our country? Can you see the pain, agony, hopelessness, despair? Can you hear the biblical cries? Help us! Where is hope to be found? Where is justice? Now, at this point, it would be very easy and appropriate for me to say, that's where we come in, church. We have the answer. Now let's go tell them. Let's go do justice. Let's go show it to them. But I don't think we're there yet. A lot of people are confused, asking me, what can we do? What should we do? We need to act. But family, that's the wrong question to start with. The question we need to start with is, can I see? Can you see? the biblical issues in our society? Can you see the biblical issues in our humanity? They're there. Can we see who God is and what He has done? Can we see what He wants to do, what He is doing? Can we see what our role is in the world today? In fact... If you cannot see clearly through the lens of Scripture, from the Spirit and heart of Christ, then I would go so far as to say, please don't do anything at all yet. Because you'll probably end up making matters worse. I see too many Christians eager to engage hot topics, eager to discuss inflammatory categories and terms, eager to discuss emotionally charged opinions on social, political, and economic matters, and I hear very little talk about God and what He says on these matters. The quickest way to make matters worse is for us to engage the world without God and His Word. Family, we need to start by opening our Bibles and sustain by seeking true wisdom, seeking true insight, seeking God. Who is He? What does He do? What has He done? What is He doing? What does He want to do through us? Can we see the humble, selfless, sacrificial love that is required to engage these matters as we identify with Christ in them? Then, and only then, will we know what we can do and should be doing in the world. Psalm 146 
being one of many places for Christians to begin and sustain ourselves. I want to close this thought with another quote from St. Augustine to reinforce the main point here, which he puts so elegantly and is way better in Old English from the Latin. It sounds so much nicer, but I'll spare you from having to interpret the dead language. He says, Put not your trust in princes. Brethren, here we receive a mighty task. It is a voice from heaven. From above it sounds to us. What a tragedy it is that through weakness, man, whenever tribulation appears, he despairs God and chooses to rely on man. When one finds themselves in trouble, and it is said to them, There is a great man by whom you may be set free. He smiles, he rejoices, he is lifted up. But if it is said to him, God can set you free, he is chilled, so to speak, by despair. The aid of a mortal is promised, and you rejoice. The aid of the immortal is promised, and are you sad? It is promised that you should be set free by one who likewise needs to be free with thee. And you exult, as at some great aid. But when you are promised that liberator, who needs none to free him, you despair, as though it was a fable. Woe to such thoughts! They wander far. Truly there is great sadness and death in them. Approach, begin to long, begin to seek, and know him by whom you were made, for he will not leave his work if he be not left by his work. Where are we looking for hope, family? Who do we seek for truth, comfort, and help? Everything that we've just tracked through can be applied to any contemporary issue or circumstance that you find yourself in. Now, what are we to make of verses 5 through 9? All of these descriptions of who God is. The reality is, we can preach a sermon on each and every line as they vividly are displayed throughout the Bible and course of redemptive history. The Lord is maker and sustainer. The Lord is faithful. The Lord upholds truth. He executes justice. He provides. He liberates, illuminates, restores, raises up. He loves. He protects. He supports and also thwarts, brings to ruin his opponents. What we see here is a praiseworthy summary of who God is. And now this is so interesting and important to note because what God does flows out of who he is. Tim Keller, in his book Generous Justice, which I highly recommend to you all as we need a biblical framework to think through, interpret, understand, and respond to 
whatever social uh, issue, specifically justice issues uh, that, that, that we engage with and face in our society today. Generous justice. He shows in this book how these descriptions and characteristics, repeated many times throughout Scripture, are the means through which God presents himself to the world. So interesting. In a similar way, if someone were to ask me to preach or teach as a guest, they would first ask me for a description of how they should introduce me. I would tell, I would say them, I would tell them to say, uh, tell them I'm a pastor of Riverstone Church, that I'm husband of Davia, father of two girls, the schools I went to, and my background, etc. God says, I am father to the fatherless, defender of the poor and widows, protector of foreigners and the vulnerable, liberator of the oppressed, deliverer of the suffering. This is who I am. This is earth-shattering for ancient Near East religions and for us today, family. All ancient Near East religions had gods who identified with the rich and powerful. That's why it was always so profitable to follow religions in history and still is around the world today in order to achieve a higher status. But not the one true God of the Bible. Our God says... I identify with the poor and the vulnerable, the weak and the oppressed. We see this reality in its fullest sense when God himself stepped out of his glorious kingdom in heaven on high and descended into our broken, corrupt world to be with us. Jesus Christ Born in a farmhouse manger with animals. Rejected from his birth, born into a poor family, scorned and abandoned by his people, unjustly treated, unjustly beaten, unjustly tried and condemned by his own people and heinously murdered on a cross as a truly innocent man. You know, when Jesus started his earthly ministry, as Luke records for us in Luke 4, he shows us that Jesus walks into his hometown and opens up the Isaiah scroll, and he's got a word for his homies, his hometown people. He reads these very words found in Psalm 146, which are also encompassed in, Psalm, in Isaiah 61. And Jesus reads Isaiah 61 and concludes, I am he. Though he was rich, for our sake he became poor, that through his poverty we would become rich. Jesus, who knew no sin on the cross, received our sin so that we who believe in him would receive the righteousness of God. Amen? That's mercy. That's justice. There is so much more to say 
about the justice of God and the righteousness of God. And we will surely be covering these essential biblical realities in the months ahead as it pertains to our witness in the world today. So I would encourage you all to keep a lookout for various emails and on the website as we spend the next year uh, and beyond providing very helpful biblical and practical resources to think, discuss, biblically, critically, through these important issues of our day that are rooted in the gospel. But for now, I want to close by drawing our attention to one line that seems almost out of place in a sense in this psalm. From verses 5 to 9, the psalmist describes the character of God. And in verse 8, he says, The Lord loves the righteous. Who are the righteous? And why does he love them? The righteous are those who have been made right with God through the gospel of God. Having a right standing before him, they also live righteously with him. Alex Motier, an Old Testament scholar and specialist in the prophets, defines it this way. The righteous are those made right with God and therefore committed to putting right all relationships in life. I like how he defines that because it's relationship-centered. How is your relationship with God? How are your relationships with others, with the world around you, Another way to think about it is this. How we relate to others reflects how we relate to God. How we think about others reflects how we think about God. How we interact with others reflects how we interact with God. God loves those who love him and love others the way he loves them. God loves the righteous. As we have spent time reflecting on God, we have seen that what God does flows out of who he is. And the same goes and should go for us who bear the name of God, Christian. Christians have been made right and therefore are righteous. And so we live righteously. What we do and say should flow out of who we are. Family, we reflect what we revere. We become What we behold, what are you beholding? Where is your gaze fixed? Who or what has become our focus, our attention? Behold Christ 
family. Look to Him. Trust Him. Hope in Him alone. Learn from Him. Watch Him. Listen to Him. Become like Him as we seek to represent Him as His agents of peace and reconciliation in this broken and divided world. And if you do not know yet Christ as Lord and healer and savior of the world and for you, there is hope. For in this world there is much chaos and much trouble, but behold, Christ has overcome the world. He is greater than you, greater than us and the world, and he wants you to see and listen, believe and receive him. That will be your and our first step toward true, long-lasting transformation, hope, and satisfaction. I'm going to close by reading verse 10 in a kind of doxology. The Lord Jesus reigns forever. Our God, O Zion, to all generations. Hallelujah. Arise, church. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Respond. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are our rock and our redeemer. We thank you that in you we can hope and have encouragement. Unshakable hope, Lord. Help us fix our minds and our hearts on you and see you for how, who you truly are, how beautiful, how majesty, how majestic you are, O oh God, and how very involved in our lives and our world you are. Lord, this weekend, as we acknowledge the 4th of July and the freedoms that we certainly do have in this country, Lead us by your Spirit to exercise our freedoms in such a way that we live our lives out zealously at, as agents of reconciliation and peace, making your name known throughout the land, causing this nation in turmoil to abound in thanksgiving and praise. We praise you and thank you, O oh Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you.